You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 4, and we will read together beginning at verse 27 through verse 38. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they're white for harvest. Already he who is reaping is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice before you and your goodness to us, and that this goodness is revealed in your word. We thank you that you have told us about yourself and who you are and what you have done for us in this book. We come to it now and we bow our hearts and our knees before it. We recognize that we are under your word. We are not over your word. We pray that you would instruct us from it and give us the grace to be humbly obedient to all that we read herein. We pray that you would encourage us together and exhort us and rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, that you would be pleased to honor yourself through obedient lives of your people now and forever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Do you ever marvel at the majestic and wonderful grace of Jesus Christ toward you and His kindness toward you? Do you think often about how kind and how patient and how merciful and how uh, loving and long-suffering God is toward somebody such as yourself? I do. In fact, whenever I read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I marvel constantly at how patient and long-suffering the Lord Jesus was with the disciples. How He put up with their thick-headed numbskullery and their slowness to learn and their apathy towards spiritual things and their lack of faith and their lack of vision their lack of excitement, their inability to grasp spiritual truth, the, just the slowness with which things sort of dawned on them. And then I asked myself, in the same situation, would I have been any different? Am I much different, really, than Peter, James, and John? Now, last week I said to you, I find myself having far more in common with the woman at the well than I do with the disciples. And when it comes to their greatness, the greatness of those men, their notoriety, their giftedness, their abilities, their talents, their skills, their, their place in church history, their fame, their accomplishments. That is absolutely true. But when it comes to their sluggishness, their slothfulness, their indolence, their uh, numbskullery, as it were, the slowness to learn, the thick-headedness, 
I find myself looking in a mirror when I look at Peter. Looking in a mirror when I look at James and John. Looking in a mirror when I hear James and John arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And I think, haven't I thought to myself that? What rewards, what will my rewards look like? My mansion, what's it going to look like? My crown, what is it going to look like for my service? Is it going to be greater than I expect or lesser than I expect or about what I expect? What will be my level of greatness compared to the, the Christian who gets in sort of by the skin of his teeth on his deathbed? What will be their level of greatness compared to the apostles? And I look at James and John and Peter and I think, man, I, I'm that numbskullery. I'm that thick-headed. I'm that slow to learn. We see a little bit of their slowness to learn and their, their slowness to catch on and get it in John chapter 4. And we just briefly looked at this last week when I pointed out to you that the woman and the disciples shared one thing in common. Both were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. Were the disciples convinced that Jesus was the Savior of the world, the Son of God, come in the flesh? As Messiah, as King, were they convinced that this was the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote? Yeah, you can read through chapter 1. And all of the disciples who attached themselves to Jesus were convinced of that. They knew that. They believed that. They had every reason. That's what Nathaniel said to Philip. We have found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Come see for yourself. This is him. This is the one. Did the woman at the well understand that and believe that to be true? Jesus had said to her, I am the Messiah. The Messiah is the one, the I am who is speaking to you. So she understood that. She immediately left her water pot and went away into the city. The disciples and the woman had that one thing in common. Both of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah, who he claimed to be. They understood his claim. They believed it to be true. But the contrast between the woman at the well and the disciples could not be any starker than it is in John chapter 4, because both of them, believing this to be true, the disciples went away into the city to get bread, and the woman later went into the city, and what did she come back with? Not lunch, but a crowd of people. That she went in and she told them, this is not the Messiah, is it? Could this be the one? And the people then came out of the city to see if this was indeed the Messiah. Both of them were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, but one of them understood immediately what it meant to be a fisher of men. Understood immediately what it was to share that good news with somebody else. The disciples left, went away into the city and came back with food. The disciple, the woman went away into the city and came back with a crowd of people to receive the bread of life. The disciples went to get bread, not to share the bread of life. And I look at them and I think, how could you be so, so dense? You're the evangelist. You're the fishers of men. You've been traveling with Jesus all of this time. But then I ask myself, am I any better? Really than the disciples. Do we not find ourselves often caught up with the things in life which are trivial, which will burn, which are insignificant, which are for our own satisfaction and comfort and enjoyment, and things which will perish with the using of them, and oblivious entirely to the manifold opportunities that go racing by us on their way to eternity? Do we not do the same thing as the disciples? Consumed with our stomachs, while we are confronted with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, some of them day after day after day, week after week after week, and we say to ourselves, tomorrow, next time we get together, I'll share this. When I have an opportunity, I'm too busy today, I've got the kids, I've got this responsibility, I have to go there, I'm too consumed with doing this, maybe another time I will address spiritual things. Well, here we have in John chapter 4 an opportunity to sit in on Jesus discussing with his disciples that very lack of urgency 
And it is a very mild and gentle but unmistakable rebuke to them that they were able to go into the city and come back without a harvest when they should have gone into Sychar and got lunch and a crowd and then come back with the harvest. So last time we left, the passage was at the end of verse 30. We're picking it up in verse 31. The woman has gone into the city, and the woman has said to the people, come see a man who told me all the things that I have ever done. Could this be the Christ? Come and see for yourself. And the text says that the people came out of the city, and they kept coming out of the city, sort of a a constant trickle of people coming out to the well to see Jesus. Then in verse 31, with the introduction, with that word, meanwhile, we are told that while, during the period of time when the disciples arrived and the woman left, and the woman went into the city to get the people, and they came back out to the city, and they finally joined Jesus there at the well, beginning in verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans had come out and they had believed on him. During that period of time, while Jesus was alone with his disciples, the woman had a two-mile walk into town, and I imagine it was quick. And then she had time to sort of spread the word a little bit. And then she had a two-mile walk back out of the town to the well, which I imagine was quick. And I imagine the people were hustling out there as well to see if this one could be the Christ. So Jesus had a few moments alone with his disciples. Now the disciples have, put put yourself in their place, they have no idea what the woman is left for. They have no idea that she has gone into the city to tell others. And they have no idea that people are about to come out to the well and they are about to be surrounded by those dirty, filthy, idolatrous, Samaritan people that every Jew was taught to despise from the moment he was born. They have no idea that they are about to be flooded by all of these people. Now Jesus has the opportunity in just a few moments to teach his disciples something key, something something necessary, so that they will be prepared when those people show up, that all 12 of them and Jesus are on the same page. They all know what is about to happen. So Jesus has to talk to them about the harvest and what it is that they should be engaged in and what it is that they should be doing. So we get to sit in now on this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Let's pick it up in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Now, why would they be saying this to him? Remember back at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus arrived at the well, and what was his physical condition? Do you remember it? He was wearied from his journey. He was tired, probably because of lack of food. The disciples left their master at the well, not wanting to burden him with going into the city to buy food. We're told down, and I think it's verse 8, Yes, it is verse 8. His disciples had gone away into Sychar to buy food, and now they brought it back out to Jesus. They have no idea what has transpired between Jesus and the woman. All they have heard is him declare his Messiahship to her. Her say to him, well, when Messiah comes, we will sort all of this out. And then they watch her put down the water pot and leave. And they're standing there with lunch. The last time they saw Jesus, he was hungry. He was thirsty. He was weary. He needed something to eat, and he had sat down at the well. And they had said to him something like this, Master, you stay here, we will go fetch lunch. They went into the city, they got bread, pickled fish, or whatever it is that they ate in that day, a lamb chop sandwich, and they brought it out to the Lord at the well. And so they have arrived with lunch, and as they showed up onto the scene, they hear the woman say what she did, Jesus say what he did, the woman leaves. What was the most natural thing for the disciples to say? Rabbi, we've got the lunch. You sent us in to fetch lunch. Here it is. We've got pickled fish. We've got some fresh baked bread. We have a, a lamb chop sandwich and some corn chips and tortillas and rice or whatever it is that they had. Here it is, Master, Rabbi, eat. You were hungry. When we left you, you were hungry. We know that having traveled the two miles in, the two miles back, this time has gone on. You're even hungrier and thirstier than when we left you. 
I have food to eat you don't know about. We just walked two miles into Sychar and back out. Who brought you food? What food are you talking? Did you bring him any food? I didn't bring him any food. Did somebody sneak out here while we weren't looking? While we were the, the woman at the well? Who brought him food? Where did he get his food? If you had a stash of food, why didn't you tell us about that before we went into Sychar to fetch lunch? If you already have food, I see they totally missed the point. And you're going to see what Jesus's food was and what he is setting them up to teach them. But before we look at that, friends, I just want you to notice how they missed the the, the total obvious point that Jesus was driving at, and that is that he was speaking not of physical food and not of physical appetite and not of physical sustenance, but of spiritual food, spiritual appetite, and spiritual sustenance. Now, he's using a physical term as a metaphor that they don't catch right away. They're, they're a little, what do we say, numbskullery? Slow to learn? They're a little slow to learn exactly what Jesus meant when he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now, they missed the point of what he was driving at. He wasn't speaking of physical things, but spiritual things. Now, we would put the disciples, in missing the point, in the same place that we have already seen three other times in the Gospel of John, and we're only to chapter 4, of people who heard what Jesus said, understood, did not understand the metaphor, but understood what he was saying in purely physical terms and not the spiritual terms that he intended. For instance, in John chapter 2, when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What did the Jews and the Pharisees in the temple say? It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? You see, they thought he was speaking of the temple, Herod's temple, that they were standing in when Jesus uttered those words. Totally missed the point. Verse 21 says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. That they didn't get. And after the resurrection, even his disciples didn't catch it at the moment, but after the resurrection, then the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in him. John chapter 3, we see it again. Jesus saying, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. To which Nicodemus said, how can a man be born a second time? Enter a second time into his mother's womb when he's old? How does this happen? Nicodemus understood him to be speaking in physical terms. Jesus was speaking of a spiritual reality, a spiritual thing that had to happen. You see in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, verse 10, if you knew who it was that is speaking to you and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? He was speaking in spiritual terms. She was understanding him in physical terms. So we, the Pharisees didn't get it. The Jews in Jerusalem didn't get it. The Nicodemus didn't get it. The woman at the well didn't get it. And here Jesus is doing the same thing, misunderstood again with the disciples. I have food to eat that you don't know about. Who brought him food? Where did he get this food? Did he have a stash of food before we left and we went the two miles for nothing? They understand him entirely in physical terms and not understanding the spiritual meaning of what he is driving at. So, if you were the disciple and you showed up on the scene, Jesus said that to you, I have food to eat that you don't know about, you would be saying to yourself, did the woman offer him food? Did the woman give him food? Did he get food from a villager passing by, another traveler? Did he get some off of them? Where did he get this food? They're still thinking in purely physical terms, and that's why Jesus has to tell them what the food it is that he's speaking of in verse 34. Look at it. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I want you to notice something about their question. Look at the disciples' question. This is not something that was readily obvious to me, but it was something with some reflection after somebody else pointed out. By somebody else, I mean a commentary I was reading pointed this out, and I thought, you know, this is true. The, the disciples' question that they ask, did somebody bring him some food, tells us something about Jesus' 
miracle working and His miracles. When they heard Jesus say, I have food to eat that you don't know about, they immediately assumed that He got food from somebody else, that somebody brought Him food. They never once assumed that He had created food out of thin air for Himself. They never once assumed that He had turned a a stone into bread. Instead, they assumed that if He, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Messiah, had something to eat, He must have got it from somebody else. Or somebody must have brought Him food. Or He had food that He was hiding from them, that He kept from them, that they didn't know about. They never once assumed that He would create food or that He would turn rocks into bread and eat it Himself. And that tells you something about what they understood miracles to be and what they understood about His miracle working abilities. The disciples knew their Master well enough to know that He would never perform a miracle for the sake of His own comfort, His own convenience, or to satisfy His own needs. Now, could He have done those things? Could He have picked up a stone and turned it into bread? He could have done that. An act of His will. No effort involved in doing it. He could have done it. I said at the beginning when He was thirsty that He could have picked up a handful of that dust and turned it into the purest, coolest, most refreshing water that has ever fallen on human lips. He could have done that, but He didn't. In fact, He could have picked up dust, He could have turned it into water, and then He could have turned it into wine if He wanted to. He had done that in chapter 2. But He didn't do it. Because Jesus never worked a miracle for the satisfaction of His own needs, or His own wants, or for any selfish end. He could have called ten legions of angels to have them take Him off the cross, but He didn't. Why? Because all of His miracles and all of His signs were done for the purpose of demonstrating to everybody His credentials, that He was who He was. His miracle working power was never exercised for Himself, for His own selfish ends. And the disciples knew this, which is why they asked the question, did somebody bring Him food to eat? Because they didn't ask Him the question, oh, you must have turned dust into water and stones into bread. They would never assume that. Because Jesus never worked a miracle for Himself. Just an interesting observation. Tells us something about His miracle working abilities. Instead, Jesus says in verse 34, and this is where we get the indication that He's speaking of spiritual terms and not physical terms, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. Now the disciples would understand, okay, He's not speaking of physical food, He's speaking of spiritual food. So what does He mean when He says, my will is, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me? What was the purpose? And here we get a glimpse of Jesus' own description of His purpose in coming into the world. What was the purpose of the Father sending the Son into the world? And the Son coming into the world? Why did He come? He came, and we see this through the Gospel of John, and it's, and it's repeated constantly as a major theme in the Gospel of John, that the Son came to do the will of the Father. So we have to ask the question, why did the Son come? To which we must say, He came to do the will of the Father. And then we ask the question, what was the will of the Father? When Jesus says, I came to do the will of the Father, and my food, my sustenance, is to do the Father's will, what was the Father's will? So, why did Jesus come into the world to do the will of the Father? I want you to just look at three or four quick verses with me that will take us just through the Gospel of John. And we could go on and on with this in John, but we're not going to. Look at John chapter 5, verse 30. John chapter 5, over one, just one chapter. John chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And turn over just one chapter to John chapter 6, verse 38. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. One more, turn to John chapter 8, verse 29. Just a couple of chapters, and I know it's always just a couple of chapters, and by the time we're done, we're a couple of chapters from the end. John 8, verse 29. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Why did the Father send the Son into the world, and why did the Son come down here? The overarching answer to that question is to do the will of the Father so that Jesus could in everything and at all times say, I do the Father's will. I always do those things that are pleasing to Him. I told you a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was not a man pleaser. He was never wringing his hands, interested if people were upset or accepting what he was doing or how they felt about him. He was not a man pleaser. He was consumed with one thing, and that was to do the will of him who sent him. That was why he came. So that at the end of it all, he could say in John 17, verse 4, I have accomplished thy will. I have kept all that you have given to me. I have done what you have given me to do. And then say on the cross, it is finished. It's all done. So then we ask, since we know that the Son came into the world to do the will of the Father, what is the will of the Father? And should I even be concerned with what the will of the Father is? And does it touch me? And it certainly does. What is the will of the Father? Turn back to John chapter 6, where we had our Scripture reading. I want you to read verse 37 through verse 40 with me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. That's His purpose statement. Okay, the Lord came down from heaven not to do His own will, but the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? Generally speaking, we would say this. In in big terms, in broad strokes, the will of the Father was that the Son would come to save sinners. That is as general as you could possibly put it. But we have to get more specific than that, and we do get more specific than that in John chapter 6. Specifically, what is the will of the Father? Verse 38, or 39, this is the will of Him who sent me. Do you want to look at the Father's will? Do you want to look at what the Father was wanting the Son to do when He came to earth? Verse 39, that of all that He, that is the Father, has given to me, that is the Son, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. He repeats it so that you and I don't miss it. Jesus is saying, this is not my will. This is the will of the Father. That everyone who beholds the Son, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and I myself will raise that one up on the last day. Now, what is the will of the Father? The Father in eternity past gave a people to the Son. The will of the Father is that the Son would come to earth to save, sanctify, and secure that people for Himself, for His own glory, and that the Son would lose none of them. It was the Father's will that the Son lose none of those that the Father had given to the Son. None. Not some, not even one. None. But that the Son would ultimately raise 
all of that company of people up at the last day, at the resurrection of the just, so that the Son would be able to present to the Father a redeemed humanity and be able to say to the Father, all that you have given to me, I have kept, I have saved, I have sanctified, I have secured, and it is all for your glory. And Father, I have lost none of those that you have given to me. But I have saved all of them, and I have raised all of them up for your glory. That was the will of the Father in giving a people to the Son. And the will of the Father was that the Son would come and save those people. Raise them up at the last day. And glorify, through that salvation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now these are some grand things, are they not? Grand things. Does it affect me? Well, I'll tell you what, it does affect me. Because I will tell you this. I am thankful that it was the will of the Father to save me. And I am thankful that it was the will of the Father that Christ raised me up for Himself at the last day. Why? Can Christ fail to do the will of the Father? Is that possible? Is it possible for the Father to will one thing and the Son to will another thing? That's heresy. That is impossible. And it is also impossible that the Father should will something and that the Son should say, you know, I tried. Father, I tried my best. I came, I died on a cross, many of them believed on me, they got eternal life, they slipped out of my hands. I really wished I could raise all of them up, but Father, I just couldn't do that. Because their will prohibited me from keeping them to the end, so I wasn't able to accomplish all that you had given me to do. I wasn't able to fully fulfill all of your will. So is it possible, and I was just asked this this last Friday, at Ask the Pastor Night in Awana. Is it possible that somebody who has become a Christian would fall away and lose their salvation and then not become a Christian? And I said, it is impossible. Why? Because all, all who behold the Son and believe on the Son will have eternal life. All that the Father has given to the Son, all will be raised up on the last day. He has come, this is the will of His Father, to come and to save, sanctify, and secure most of those that, oh, no, no. All of those that the Father has given to him. What is the will of the Father? You will spend the rest of your life basking in John 6. I can't get over it. And I'm thankful that the Son could never fail to do what the Father sent him to do. And that is to save me. Because we call this election. In eternity past, the Father gave a people to the Son. And He said to the Son, you're going to go and you're going to redeem those people. And the Son said, gladly, I will die for my bride and I will gather in all of my sheep and I will lose none. And on the last day, I will raise them all up and I will present them as a gift to the Father and the Father will present them as a gift to me and we both will be glorified and the Spirit will glorify us. Together, we will all be glorified with through this redeemed humanity because none will be lost. And the Son will be able to say, I have done it. I have accomplished the work that you have sent me to do, and here is all of those that you have committed to my charge. None of them have gone. All who have believed are now glorified and raised up. That is the will of the Father. Back to John chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. The will of the Father was such sustenance, such food, such 
an engrossing task that Jesus could say, this to me is like and is better than food. To do the will of the Father is better to me than food. That is my food. That is what I live on, is to do the will of the Father. Now specifically, what did Jesus have in mind? Back to the context of John chapter 4. The woman at the well was what? One of those that in eternity past the Father had given to the Son and said, save her. And Jesus now has come to the well and become so engrossed in doing the Father's will, so engrossed in the spiritual activity of gospel proclamation and gathering in His sheep, that when the disciples show up and they have food, He doesn't even remember His hunger. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. You brought me physical food, but there's spiritual food that exists that I am being sustained by. And that sustains me to do the Father's will. What had he been involved in? Doing the Father's will. Gathering in, seeking and saving that which was lost. Gathering in one that the Father had given to him so that she would behold him and believe on him and receive eternal life. And that woman will be raised up at the last day. And we will stand in eternity with the woman at the well because he came to do the Father's will and he was doing it. Now that phrase, my, my sustenance or my food, is to do the will of Him who sent me. What, is that, what does that mean? Let me give you something that's going to make sense to you. It is an indication to us of the passion of Jesus in fulfilling what He knew to be God's will. He was driven by that. And I just ask you this, examine yourself. Do you long to do and wish you could do more fully, more faithfully, more passionately, more fervently the will of your God? Do you wish you could serve Him more? Do you wish you had the physical ability to do more than you do? The time to do more than you do? Are you sustained and fulfilled and love and long to serve the Savior? Because you want to offer yourself to Him. And you know what the Father's will is for your life and you long to do it and you enjoy doing it. That's what Jesus is saying. But there is something a bit more mysterious and this is going to sound wacky and kooky to some of you. But it's going to make a lot of sense to others. So I'm just going to tell you what it is, and I'll leave it at that. There is a very real sense when a person is involved in fulfilling the Lord's will and in doing ministry, in offering themselves, in serving others, that they get so engrossed in the activity of walking with God and serving God and being obedient to God that the bodily desires and cravings, be they uh, animal desires or cravings or desires for food or for drink, seem to get put on the back burner, and before long you forget about it, not because they don't exist, but because you were involved and consumed in this thing to the point where you even forget about food. You forget about hunger. Or physical incapacity, or physical inability, or physical pain. Some of the great saints of old have spoken of being so burdened with pain so unable to do what God had called them to do that they would literally hobble to the occasion and do it as if they had no physical inabilities or inhibitions at all and then almost collapse afterwards. It was said of Spurgeon, uh, through all of his physical ailments, m much of it arthritis and gout in his feet, that toward the end of his life when he would preach, he would hobble up the stairs into the pulpit. The, the man could barely walk. And he would stand up and they said once he got up into the pulpit, he could preach to 10,000 people and you would never know that anything was wrong with him. Pace back and forth and he was just Spurgeon as he was. And then when he got done, he would hobble or almost be crippled on the way back down. And then he would go and lay down and spend the rest of the week in bed. Why? Because there's a very real sense that when you are doing the work of God, 
when you are engrossed and involved in those things, that all of the other concerns of life seem to fade off into the distance and they grow strangely dim, as it were. That, I think, is what Jesus is speaking of here as well. Now, if you think that's kooky, fine. If you understand what that is, then good. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Look at verse 35. Oh, I need to get in the right chapter of our Bible here. Look at verse 35. Now, this is a very gentle rebuke. Do not, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Is this not something that you say? You guys say, or you have this saying, as sort of a way of saying it. You have this saying, hey, it's four months until the harvest. Now, there's two ways of understanding that. And neither of these is heresy. Both of them would work. First, some people say that that's just a time designation. That's Jesus' way of, and John's way of sort of giving us an indication as to when this took place. The spring harvest was in April or May of the year. And so if it was four months until the harvest, that means this took place around December to February, somewhere in that window of time. So the planting and seeding had been done. It was sort of the cooler time of the year. They had four months until the harvest was about to take place. And so Jesus is just saying, were you not as you were talking on your way out from the city that there are four months yet until the harvest? And you look out over the fields and things are just kind of breaking through the soil and just starting to grow. And so you got another four months left, sort of a time indicator. Or it's possible, and this is the interpretation or understanding that I prefer, that this was a proverbial saying of the day. That there's another proverb that, proverb that Jesus gives in verse 37. And I think he is here giving another, another proverb. Do you not say, is it not said among you? Isn't this something that people kind of say? Four months until the harvest. Now what would the proverb mean? If you were a farmer and you went out and you sowed your seed, you went through all the trouble of working the soil and tilling it up and running the animals and casting the seed and then waiting upon the spring rains to come or the winter rains to come and moisten the soil, after doing all of that work of preparing the ground and planting the seed, you would sit down and you would say to yourself, got four months until the harvest, right? You need to get out and get busy, get active. Hey, what's the deal? Four months until the harvest. So it's kind of a proverb that expressed the ability to not get anxious over things, just take it easy. Don't get your gitch in a hitch. Just relax. We got four months till the harvest. No sense getting all anxious and tied up over this. We can't avoid the waiting. We got to wait until things mature. Wait until the timing is right. No sense doing today, which you can put off until tomorrow. Rome wasn't built in a day. That's how we kind of say the same thing today, right? Relax. Rome wasn't built in a day. We got all kinds of time. Do you not say, relax? Four months to the harvest. Now that type of lack of urgency may be appropriate two or three days after the seeding in a physical crop. But here's Jesus' point. Spiritually speaking, it is never appropriate to say, hey, relax. No need to have a sense of urgency about this. We've always got tomorrow. We've always got next week. There will be the next time that I see that person. I told you some months ago, uh, about a lady that rent, rented a trailer from my mom. And uh, I was over there talking with her one day, and she mentioned how she was scared to die. And, of course, that was a witnessing opportunity I couldn't pass up. So I took her through the gospel and explained it to her. And then I went back another time and explained it to her again and took that opportunity. It had been three, four, five months, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I should go back down there, uh, strike up the conversation again, and take her through the gospel one more time, make sure that this older, elderly lady understands that because she may be still afraid to die. And I uh, put it off for a few weeks. Um, three weeks ago, I, text from, I got a text from my sister. Bev is dead. My sister lives right next door to her. She died. Sometime Saturday night before Sunday morning, she died. Don't know why she died, but she died. 
Is it ever appropriate to say, four months to the harvest? What's the, what's the urgency? These kids have all of their lives to grow up and hear the gospel and respond to it. Really? Do you know that for certain? Do you know that your neighbor has all of his life to live, to grow up and hear the gospel? Your neighbor, your coworker? You say, it's just four months to the harvest. we got all kinds of time. And then Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white, white for harvest. Now, why white? Why white? The crops that they grew were gold when they were ready for harvest. Why white? One commentator, uh, uh, say it with me. One commentator in a commentary suggested that the whiteness came from the fact that when the disciples would have looked up over the fields toward the city of Sychar, what they would have seen was the people coming out dressed in their robes of white and their garments of white, which people wore at that day, and they would have seen the harvest coming to them. So they're having the conversation. It's never appropriate to say no sense of urgency. You have to have a sense of urgency in this work. You cannot say we'll put the harvest off till tomorrow. Look up. The fields are white for harvest. And the disciples look up and what do they see? The people coming out to them down the path from the city of Sychar. The woman has already gone and done the labor and she's bringing the people out to them and the disciples get to reap the harvest. It's a sense of urgency, my friends. A sense of urgency. It is never appropriate to say, we don't need to be urgent about this task. We have till tomorrow. No, today is the day of salvation. If you're sitting here and you've never repented of your sins and trusted Christ for salvation, I'm telling you, there's a sense of urgency hanging over your life because you have no guarantee that you will be breathing breath tomorrow or even later today. In terms of the gospel and salvation and eternal life and living water and regeneration and the new birth, you and I have to have a sense of urgency. Now, I would leave you with this, and I would just ask you to consider this yourself and examine your own self and ask, ask yourself this. Do I have a sense of urgency when it comes to gospel work? Am I involved in the things that will really reap fruit for eternity? Or am I so consumed with today, tomorrow, next week, satisfying myself, being involved in the details of life, and there's nothing wrong with handling the details of life, to say that you're going to neglect your wife and your family and providing to do spiritual things is not spiritual. That makes you worse than an infidel. Those things are appropriate. But do we have the balance of being able to say, I am not so consumed with these things that I am neglecting the things that are really important. And when it comes to those who are unsaved in my life that I know, do I have a sense of urgency to communicate with them the gospel? Or do I make excuses like, hey, I got till tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next time. Or what I believe to be the most insidious and the most poisonous and the most hideous excuse of all. If God is sovereign over salvation, I don't need to preach the gospel because if he's going to save him, he's going to save him with or without my help. So I'll just let God do the work and I don't, I'm not responsible for it. Where's your urgency, my friends? Are you involved in seeking and saving that which was lost? There's always a harvest. You could leave here today and go out onto any street and talk to anybody and you search around, you will find that the harvest is waiting for you and I to take advantage of it and to harvest where others have labored and others have sown the seed. Let's pray together. Our God, all we can say is make us diligent in this task and make us faithful to the end of sharing your glorious gospel and the good news of your Son. 
Give us a longing in our hearts to have a part in the work of seeking and saving that which was lost. And may you use us to call in those whom you have given to your Son so that we might receive that glory and enjoy that glory with you on that day when we are all raised up together. Thank you that it was your will to seek us, to save us, to sanctify us, and to secure our salvation, both now and for all of eternity. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.